Hey, this is Katie, and I am here today with Charles Parker and Robert Vasquez, two amazing professors from COS. Yeah, so let's start with you guys introducing yourselves. My name is Charles Parker, and I teach English. I have been teaching at COS now for 33 and a half years. Robert Vasquez, I've been teaching here since 1991, and I teach basically most of the English classes, but lately, English 1, English 2, and Creative Writing. Y'all have been, I mean, this is me telling people how old I am, but Robert, you have been teaching here since the year I was born. Oh, um, no. So, yeah. <laughs> how does that feel? <laughs> wow. Now I really feel ancient. But, but anyway. no, don't feel ancient. I mean, it's to me amazing. It means you guys have like years of expertise. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so we are here today to talk about prompts. But before we get into all of that, do you guys have a good definition for students about what a prompt is? For me, and I'm hoping I illustrate that to the students, you know, especially when they're online through my writing, that they should consider a prompt to be a guide toward writing the essay. Prompts are so vital, I think, because mine are quite detailed. Those who are very good students who do read the prompts, I tend to have the fewest negative comments on their drafts, and they tend to be fairly good in terms of their final grades. They they illustrate that they're actually learning as opposed to just taking classes to take classes. Mm. We used to have an instructor here named Greg Seastrom, and he would, on the first day of class, he would define the difference between a learner versus just a class taker. I always admired that because he wanted to get across to his students that if they're here, hopefully they're here to learn. And part of that learning involves reading everything that he gives them. I'm hoping my students do the same thing, that they read prompts and that they're truly interested in learning as opposed to just taking a class just to take a class. Yeah, no, that's good. Anything to add there, Charles? Yeah, I agree with Robert that the prompt serves as a guideline for the students to follow so that they could be successful in writing their essays. And so it details what the instructor wants in the paper. And so some people put little check marks on the prompt and the students, when they read them, they check off number one, number two, I met this objective, I met this objective. And I think it keeps the students focused so they could go back and compare their paper to the prompt. We used to have a saying back in the day with the persons that he talked about, Greg Seastrom and all those individuals, but we said sometimes the students are the victims of a prompt because sometimes we write prompts that are just, well, we get the essays and it's like, yeah, that prompt was kind of crappy. We could have done a better job, you know, so therefore the students become the victim. You know, the essay is the production of that uh, bad prompt. I love that. <laughs> I, like writing down students are the victims. I totally feel that. I feel like sometimes I'm like, what did I do with that prompt? Like, what have I done? Like, this is my fault. <laughs> like, I got to figure yeah. out a way to fix it. But I really like that, um, you know, idea that those prompts, they're the guide, their directions. I often, when I've seen students try to like write a paper without the prompt, to me, it reminds me of like trying to put a table or something together without the directions. Right. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to do that, but when you're just like, okay, I have all these screws and I don't know where they go and you end up with the leftover one and like, you know, stuff's on backwards or whatever. It's, first of all, it's harder, right? It is harder when you don't use those directions to build that table. Secondly, like we are laying out like what we intense and like giving you those like tools to get you there right it tells you what you do with each screw for me at least like I'll like 
often, you know, relate the prompt to the class readings. And so if the pro you don't read the prompt, you don't know why we read what we read. So one of the reasons we're having this conversation is I know we were having a little bit of conversation in email about things you guys value in your prompts. And Robert, I know that you have very specific prompts with stuff you value. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Right. right. Well, first of all, I, I always go back to when I was a student in college. And the number one complaint I heard from my peers was, I don't know what the professor wants. Mm. And I heard that so many times as a student that I told myself, okay, if I ever become a professor, I hope to not have to hear that same complaint from my students. And so I tend to make my prompts very specific, right? Do I have topic sentences for all my body paragraphs? Do I have transition words and phrases throughout? Do I have the uh, quotation, they have to have quotation from in every body paragraph from the reader that we're using for say a specific essay. Do they use MLA and on and on and on. And so they know this is what I'm grading them on. It makes it easier for me as a teacher to grade papers, to be more object objective. The thing I hate the most is when it's all subjective. And I would hear that. Charles mentioned those sessions where we were norming and we would look at different essays. And sometimes people would say things about a student's paper that, you know, had to do with say the subject matter wasn't interesting. And I thought, wait a minute, that's not the, on, in the prompt. That, that's so subjective. It's, it's wrong to do that. Again, as he said, we wind up victimizing students yeah. because yeah. we wind up adding things to a prompt that aren't there. Is it interesting? Well, <laughs> that, that's so subjective. And so I try to make my grading criteria as objective as possible. Oh, and you asked, why do I like the specificity? It, hopefully it will keep them focused when they're writing their drafts. It's like, for example, the way I, I explain a, a, a topic statement. Think of it as a question and ask yourself, does everything in that paragraph answer that question, even though it's not a question? And that's an easy way for them to see whether or not they've gone off topic. You know, that's why I ask for these very specific topic statements. Because when they don't have a clear topic statement, that's one of the problems. And then they wind up going off topic. Specificity, I think, helps to make their job easier and also helps in terms of the clarity of what they're writing. I remember the poet Donald Justice said, he, would, he had, after he had been uh, teaching at Iowa for over 30 years, and he was asked the question, what is it the one student problem you noticed above all others? And he said, oh, that's easy, clarity. He said, far too many students don't understand the need for clarity. Robert, it's so interesting for me to hear you talk about that because like I am the opposite in my prompts. And so you talking about your specificity at first scared me a little because I was like, oh, that is opposite of what I do. But listening to you talk about it, we're making like different choices for the same reasons, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm less specific, but like because my answer to, I don't know what the professor wants is, it doesn't matter what I want. I want to see what you want to do. And, and I tend to, look. Like, one of the things we read early is this essay ca called How to Read Like a Writer by Mike Bunn. And he describes writing as a series of choices. And so really, I try to like give them the tools in the prompt and then let them make the choices in those places. But I can see like our intention is the same. Like we want our students to like understand what they're doing. You're giving them those building blocks so that they can make good choices. I'm letting them experiment. And, but it's really interesting to me to see that like the intention behind both those things are the same. And that subjectivity you talk about is something that I still try to avoid greatly, but in different ways by like using a grading contract. There's a, I can't remember who talks about it, but there's this idea of it, like a shadow syllabus and shadow prompts. And to me, that's that subjectivity, right? That we often have this like 
syllabus behind our syllabus of what we really mean or this prompt behind the prompt with the like, what does the professor want? I mean, that is a thing that we'll talk about in a moment is like, how do you jump from you to me, right? How do you jump from teachers with these completely different approaches? I'm going to swing it back around to Charles's prompts. I feel like we can talk about like that forever. Um, Charles, what kind of decisions do you make in prompts? What do yours look like? When I write prompts, I, they're based off of news items that I see on TV. And I said, you know, that would be a great thing for the students to write, you know, from A to Z. And so I kind of tweak it. So because I, I don't like getting I don't like them to be political. I like for, to, for them to you know, to think critically about the subject matter. And like, for example, I strayed away from the narrative prompt. So what this last couple of years, three years of COVID, I created a prompt where I had the students focus on how COVID affected their lives. However, I had them personify COVID as if COVID was a person whom they had a relationship with or invaded their lives of friendship and how COVID took over their lives you know, and so, and through their discussion, they would say COVID didn't want me to hang around my friends, my family members. I felt so isolated. COVID turned me into a hoarder. I went to the store, you know, and bought. And so I enjoyed reading those. I couldn't wait to read them because the students lived that. Those I look forward to because it's from a personal experience. That's so great. I love that. Sounds like such a fun prompt. I may be stealing it. Yes, I'll point. send it to you. <laughs> Did you have fun with it, Charles? I did. I did. Gosh, I got so many different stories. They were beautiful <laughs> stories. They were sad stories, you know, and so on. Oh. And they had fun with it. And their experience came out through the essay. Wow. These are the kinds of conversations we have for students who are listening to this. We love like hearing what other people are doing with prompts and like sharing and trading ideas. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm already like listening to Robert and being like, oh, maybe I should give a little more guidelines in this part of my prompts, wanting to, you know, take Charles's prompts. So, okay, I guess I kind of hinted at this, but we have students who go from my English one to Robert's English two to Charles's English four or whatever, and you're going to be pivoting. And then that's not even counting like going to your bio class and having to write a paper for that, which I will say, I felt like. I struggled like adapting to prompts in different disciplines as a student. I remember failing a biology paper once because I was writing it like it was an English paper, even though the prompt was telling me to do something else, right? I was just like, oh no, I know how to be creative like, and just like ignored the prompt. So like, what advice do you guys have for students who are making those like pretty major shifts between what they're being asked for in papers? And it's so interesting that you would bring that up because I too failed biology class because writing. I just couldn't write for that woman, you know. It exactly. Was, you know, I was good in English. And so again, it has to do with the prompt. The prompt has to be clear and concise. Then you uh, also examples have example papers. I give out you know, if I have example essays from the past, I'll, I'll share them with the students. I'll go over them over the overhead. And so that's, that sort of helps out. And if you're a student, ask for those things, right? If you're a student listening, yeah. ask for those examples. We have them. We'll share them. Exactly. Yeah. And I tell them, don't borrow from the paper, but, you know, just write down, down some ideas of how you could write your paper, what needs to be embedded in the paragraphs and those type of things. How about you, Robert? Any advice for students? Oh. <laughs> This is going to sound odd to the students. They're not going to believe it. Uh, I got a D in biology. 
it was my worst. Look at subject. us all failing biology. We should go I take know, a bio I class. Know, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. And I did find biology interesting, but for some reason, I didn't have a head for it in terms of writing papers. Anyway, you know, I try and tell students when it comes to taking other classes, please read the syllabus, first of all, in its entirety. I think I mentioned to Charles a conversation earlier, and you probably saw it on, on the internet. A professor back east, he wanted to see whether or not his students were reading his syllabi. He put in one syllabus, he put directions to find a $100 bill in a certain locker. And here's the, the combination to the locker. <laughs> the end of the semester, he went to the locker, the money was still there. <laughs> Which meant no one in his class read the entire syllabus. And, and so that's what I stress first and foremost. When you take another class, please, please read the syllabus. I know it sounds boring. I know there, some of them are very long. Mine are long. They're about 11 to 12 pages long. But that's because I've taught here for so long. I, I try and anticipate every possible question they might have. So I try and tell them to make sure you, you read the syllabi. Make sure when you get a prompt, if there's any questions you have, bring them up in class, first of all, because yeah. you'd be surprised how many students, other students have the same similar concerns. Oh, I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, and a lot of students when they're first college students, like I was, you're kind of frightened to speak up in class. It wasn't until I became an upper division student where I finally began to be comfortable asking questions in classrooms. Seek these professors out during their office hours, which I'm sorry to say, my students don't do that enough. I can always tell a good student because he or she will always take advantage of my office hours. One student recently sent me an email and they were questioning something and they said something like, they're apologizing for asking the question. And I wrote back, you know, always feel free to ask me questions. That's yeah. what I'm here for. Right. Literally our jobs. <laughs> and I felt like, yeah, the, the student was actually apologizing for sending me an email. Well, and I think another thing that you said there that I think is really important about office hours is like, you said, I know a good student because they come to office hours. I have a lot of students yeah. who think that if they come to office hours, it makes them look like a bad student, like oh, they no. can't handle it or something. And like, no, I think we all can agree, like uh, coming to office hours is a mark of a good student. Like I said, I had just finished a second master's and I was asking those teachers questions all of the time because I wanted to make sure I understood what they needed. Thinking about prompts and stuff, I really liked, yeah, those things, going to office hours, asking questions. One advice I give students is like, revisit the prompts. <laughs> like, yeah. I think a lot of the times they read it. And then by the time we're meeting and talking about the paper, they've forgotten what the paper was about. When I, when I have a prompt for a class or even for like, I was just doing last year when I was still doing evaluations at COS, it was like writing papers. And when I was working on it, I had that open on my computer or physically in front of me every time I was working on it. Cause I needed to like refer back to what I was actually being asked to do over and over again. You know, I, and when I, with the prompts, I put them over the overhead projector and I said, I want everyone to take out his or her highlighter. And I want you to highlight this. You know, when I read, I said, okay, you need to highlight this. It's very important. And so I think that's, that's helpful too, because they get a sense of what you're looking for that's in that prompt. And so it helps out, you know, because some students just sit there and just allow you just read through the prompt and, you know, and they're just not engaged. And then I walk around and say, say, Robert, did you get that? Did you get that? That was, that was good stuff. Yes, professor. I got it. You know, that's funny that Charles mentioned that because I observed him recently for his evaluation. And sure enough, he does that. He goes around and he makes sure that they highlight things. He 
walks around and see what they're doing. I think, and that actually is even hinting to the last question I had, which I don't know why I had this last, it was bad order, but was like, what should a student do when they read a prop? I have the, the, the page length, MLA, because I said, I like this, it has to be MLA. Times New Roman, 12 points. Those kinds of things, you know, and I tell them about the thesis statement, sources, the date range of the sources that they're going to use, the types of sources, those kinds of things there, I, you know, have them to highlight. Because you get emails, how many pages did you say, or what type of source are we supposed to I said, did you highlight that? Go, let's go back to the prompt. You know? First of all, I, I always tell them to make sure they note all the various requirements, because I first talk about the essay in kind of general terms. So it's just, I'm trying to give them tools that they can use in other papers. So by the time they get to other classes, and if they're doing the things that I ask them to do, oftentimes they wind up getting good papers and mm. good grades. I remember one student, a number of students have emailed me, they've left COS, they're at somewhere else, and they're writing a research paper. And they email me and they say, do you still have that that handout for writing the research paper? And I say, sure, here it is, and good luck, and whatever. And so things like that, I try to give them practical requirements so that way they can continue on doing those things in other classes. Mm -hmm. That's all. Yeah, no. And I think that's good. I think like if I were in your class, I would take that paper and make it into a checklist that prompt, right? I would be sitting there and I think I would read it at first, but then as I was probably write for ideas and not worry about my semicolons or topic sentences, then I would probably get that list and start checking them off. Read my paper looking for this thing. Read it looking for this thing. Read it for the transitions, right? That would be the way to approach it. My class, for example, the prompt often has these nuggets of like wisdom. Like sometimes I'll have stuff like I have my for my first paper right now, which I have like a series of questions that are just there for brainstorming. Like, but I have like in bold, do not just answer these pair questions each in its own paragraph. Like you have to write a paper with a thesis, with an argument, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, those are the kinds of things you should be underlining. You can see behind the curtain of our thinking in those prompts. We're telling you what you need to do to be successful. Um, and it will look very different between different teachers. It'll look very different in bio where none of us did well, right? But like, I think the other thing that might be important, at least for me in this conversation, is like telling students that it's okay to ask teachers like why they have to do a thing, right? You get to my class and I don't give you as much like structure or whatever. There's reasons I want you to, you know, play with it. But if you don't understand those reasons, like we'll, we'd love to talk about them. Obviously we've been talking about it for 40 minutes right now. So talk to us and we have theory, we have our education and our experiences shaping what we write in our prompts. Just any last thoughts about prompts? Unlike the points that both of you made about talking to the professor, you know, uh, going to the professor's office and said, I don't quite understand the prompt. Can you go over it with me? And then, you know, the, then you have that one-on-one -on -one because of a lot of students, you know, like Robert said, they don't ask questions and they're afraid to ask questions in class because they don't want to feel dumb. I encourage my students, come to my office, sit down, we go over the prompt. I'll go over it with you. Well, we could do a Zoom session, put it with screen shared and go over it line by line. So that's helpful. And so they, they understand. They're like, oh, okay, I got it now. Such good advice from you guys. It's so nice. This has been super, super interesting. The last question I'm going to ask you guys is the question I ask everybody last. Oh, um, I hope you have answers. But I always ask people, um, what are you learning right now? Are you learning anything in your lives? 
I know personally, I am learning a lot about gardening, just generally trying not to kill plants. What I'm, I, yeah, I'm kind of thinking about it as outside of, of education. And it could, or in education. Okay. I mean, I know that in the last couple of years, you have learned a lot about teaching online. That's Carl. what I was going <laughs> to Yeah. Yeah. That I have been, and, and it's been interesting. And thanks to you, Katie, you know, you've been quite helpful. You know, Robert has, and, and Sandra. Yeah. I, I never thought that I would teach online. I started out, you know, taking on uh, the, the sessions for online when, when Deborah was here. Then I stopped when it came to the last project. This was some years ago, but then I was forced on it. And I said, now I got to learn this. And so I've enjoyed learning. I feel that I'm comfortable. I could teach at another university or wherever online because so, yeah. So this is a new thing that I've added to my life online instruction. But I have to say my first love is in the classroom face-to-face. I'm sort of like, I miss face-to-face sometimes. And then I'm like, nah, I kind of like being fully online. I'm kind of enjoying it. Robert, did you think of anything? Yeah. And in fact, just listening to Charles, it made me realize when I first got trained in how to teach online, that was in 2011. It was a while ago. I always used Blackboard and then Canvas for all of my face-to-face classes. And what I realized when we went to remote is that I enjoyed, I know this is going to sound terrible to some students, but anyway, I enjoyed not having to deal with classroom behavior problems because they're isolated. They're in their whatever rooms. I don't hear them talking. So that part of online instruction, I like very much. The sad thing about online for me is I miss the interaction with the students. Yeah. But I still will look forward to those face-to-face meetings because I realized teaching this semester, I miss that in-class interaction. I miss seeing their faces. I miss, you know, hearing them, just joking with them. I miss that. You can't really do that online. So that's what I'm learning. I'm learning that I truly love face-to-face. There's a bit of the joy of learning that disappears when you're all online. I've been trying to find ways to bring it back. Yeah. Anyway, I could talk about that forever too, but I think we're pretty much good. Thank you guys so much for your time. Um, oh, thank you. You're welcome. This has You're been welcome. super fun. I'm going to have to ha- yeah. talk to y'all again. So thank <laughs> <Yeah>. you. <laughs> thank thank you. you so much, Katie.